This morning's passage is one of many in the book of Acts that shows the disciples, the apostles of Jesus after the resurrection, reclaiming a sense of courage and strength. You remember that everything they had hoped for, had faith in even God, their best friend had been crucified on the cross and they were left basically destitute of faith and hope, yet The days that followed after Jesus' resurrection found them with more and more strength and courage as they began to proclaim the incredible power of God to overcome not only the powers of darkness, but also the powers of death. I think what they found in that proclamation was a place to plant their feet. For the last three weeks and for today and two more, we are looking at where we are called to stand, where we can take our stand as a community of faith. What do we stand on? Last week, this was lifted up as God's providence. And today, in fact, is sort of a second part to that. It is about God's sovereignty Let us turn to the passage this morning from Acts 5, beginning in verse 12 and ending on verse 42. It's a remarkable story, although a bit long, so hang in there with me. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, that is, in the temple in Jerusalem. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, that the religious authorities, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about his life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on their way with teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived at the temple, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have the disciples brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went, with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. 
The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior so that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up at the, at the time of the census and got people to follow him, but he also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is, is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him, sort of, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. I've been in a phone conversation the last weeks, probably month, with a close friend of mine in Charlotte whose husband was diagnosed with a strange blood disorder, a cancer of the blood that required quite a bit of chemotherapy. That in itself was hard. Uh, it, he's a lawyer, and he's been barely able to work. It's been going on for about four months. Uh, unfortunately, she called me about two weeks ago to say that in a very small possibility of cases, he had also now developed a leukemia in reaction to it that has undermined his immune system. They just discovered that his whole outside skin is eaten up with MRSA virus, He's now in the hospital undergoing serious antibiotic treatment. She asked me, I feel numb. Where is God? Three days later, she called me again to say while at the hospital, she had just gotten a call from the wife of her favorite first cousin who had died of a heart attack three hours earlier, leaving three kids. Again, she asked, where is God? If God is loving and good and all-sovereign, she asked me, how could this happen? And I 
of course, as the professional preacher theologian, could have entered into that question of why with, well, God is sovereign, and one day we will be able to look back and see how all of these threads of tragedy have been woven into something that makes sense. Or that God is sovereign, and somehow this is the will of God in a way we do not understand. I could have carried on a theological conversation with her, but I knew that she was not really asking for that. What she was asking for was me just to listen. As God in Christ, incarnately present with us, listened. I know your pain, he said to Moses about the Egyptians at the hands of the taskmasters. I hear their cries. And so I listened to her without having an answer. It reminded me of something that Frederick Beatner wrote in his book, Wishful Thinking, about theology. He said, theology is the study of God and his ways. For all we know, dung beetles may study humans and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One hopes that God feels likewise. Instead of answering her question with the how answer, I just didn't know what to say, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. But right now, your job is to breathe and to get through this minute, this hour, this day, as best you can. Because the question for you now is what next, not why. As Christians, we confess that God is sovereign and in charge. Hopefully a little more in charge than Emily was during our children's sermon. Although I have to admit, sometimes it doesn't seem so. Some people go as far on the extreme to say that every single thing in the world that happens is because God has planned it so, has preordained it so. From the moment I set my clock last night, I set it to the usual time, and then I said, okay, if that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to set it one minute later. Some people go as far as to say that every tick in the stock market up or down is God's decree, that every illness visited upon us is God's act, every success or suffering or failure is God's providence and the will of God, as if God were this super king standing off on the far rim of the universe, pulling all the strings to make every single thing happen, or waving God's magic wand. When you look at the world, you have to agree that if that were so, God probably needs some advice. It's easy for us to believe that, you see, because when we say that, I don't want to undermine your own theology, but in saying that, it sort of reverts us back to a childhood place where we actually believe that our parents or some adults or somebody somewhere was sovereign and in charge, and therefore nothing would ever happen to them or us, and everything would work out perfectly in the end. When we're children, we believe that. But when we grow up, we discover that our parents are not sovereign, but broken, and they can't fix all our boo-boos, and neither, it seems, 
can or at least does God. Growing up, we were faced with the hard truth that if God really is pulling the strings, then as Woody Allen once said in some movie I can't remember, then if there is a God, about the best thing I can say about him is that he is an underachiever. This is exactly the dilemma that the disciples were struggling with when Jesus was crucified. For they believed that he was indeed the Messiah who had come from God that would save Israel. And he died on the cross. And after that crucifixion, they too were asking, where is God and why did this happen? But then everything changed. He was raised, and in that resurrection, they were engaged and inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit for new life and courage enough to go out, out of their fear and darkness into the world and proclaim the good news that in Jesus Christ, God has answered the real question that matters. Not why, but the only one that matters. Where is God? present. In life and in death, present. Here's the picture in this morning's text. Right outside our church door out in the plaza area, a bunch of people have started gathering there listening to some preachers that are not of our Presbyterian persuasion. And they're out there saying that, come here and hear this good news that, that the, the God of Jesus Christ has accepted you no matter what you have done or who you are, that the God of Jesus Christ does not hold you accountable to the institutional rules that are in there in that sanctuary telling you what you have to do and how you're supposed to do it. And they're saying that the God of Jesus Christ has come to give us the news that God loves us no matter what, and you are included, you the lost and the least and the last and the blind and, and the lame, you the outsider, you the excluded, all of you are accepted by God in Jesus Christ. All the people started coming out on the patio and fewer people started coming to church. And so it got the ministers and the session of the church in a, in a little bit of anxious rage. And so we called a meeting. And we said, rest them out there for trespassing. Let's go figure out what to do. So we got a meeting downtown with the big PR firm and we gathered there the next day. We sent the clerk of the session to go get the prisoners and bring them to us so we could tell them adamantly that they cannot keep doing this. And when the clerk went to the prison and found they had gone, she hurried back to the session to say, I don't know what happened, but nobody's there. So the session ended downtown, and we came back to church to figure out what to do. And when we got here, gathered around this table, what do we do next? All of a sudden, we heard it. They're out there, again, preaching the good news to those people who aren't part of this institution. And so, we sent the police out to gently bring them in here because we were afraid of the mob. 
And when they got here, we began to interrogate them. You see, Peter exclaimed, we are not here to do what the people say, that we are here to do what God says. And for church leaders, this is the thing that we fear most, that the people would start claiming an authority other than the institutional religious structures that the institutional and doctrinal system that we had carefully built up would fall like a house of cards if we lost our power. We must obey God rather than any human authority, Peter said, and soon as he did, they knew that they had lost control. They were right to be afraid. The history of the world is littered with the corpses of millions of victims who have fallen under the grandiose righteousness of evil leaders who have claimed to follow the will of God in spite of what the people say. The ISIS notwithstanding. In fact, one of the problems in our world today is that just about everybody now claims to know and follow the will of God individually that we ourselves are now the authority and the sovereign choice. The fact is that institutional traditions must be honored and respected for they preserve order, otherwise anarchy prevails. Institutions and traditions must be protected from every fad and wind that blows through culture. But it is also the case that our institutional and traditional ways easily morph into idolatry, claiming for ourselves too much of the truth and the sovereignty of God. The king or the pope or the book of order or, again, our own individual truth. Surely those apostles claiming to obey God rather than any human authority, knew that they were on just this slippery slope, yet they also knew that underneath that was the unmovable foundation of all truth, that God was sovereign and not us, that God had acted in Jesus Christ in a way that no one had expected, not the political or the religious institutions and authorities. I mean, what kind of sovereign God in control of all the universe, having all the power at God's disposal, would humble himself and become like us, eventually dying on a cross. That's sovereignty? No institution saw it coming. For institutions are built on power and hierarchy And this kind of God is always subversive to that. It undermines our earthly authority that does not follow God's will and the leaders of all institutions know it. So we try to stop it even though we can't. Even in front of the session, the disciples didn't back down, preaching that God had raised up Jesus 
who you, the church, helped crucify and had exalted him at his right hand, that he might bring repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the world. That's a sermon a lot shorter than the one I'm preaching. But it was the last straw. For at that moment, all the elders heard a motion. I moved, we stoned them. It was seconded, and as all the hands began to go up to vote on it, Gamaliel, who was a respected leader of the church, cleared his throat and asked for the floor. And he stood up. And he said, consider carefully what you propose to do. A while back, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody, and he ended up dying with all of his people with him. And again, a Galilean named Judas did the same thing, claiming to know God's will. He died too, as did all of his followers who were scattered. So now he says, in this present case, I tell you, let these men alone Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And in that case, you might even be found fighting against God. Now these words to me are the wisest institutional words I have ever come across. It gives us counsel in the face of trying to discern God's will whenever we are faced with making hard decisions. It reminds us that God is sovereign, not us. That God will have God's way in the end, no matter what we do. And that ultimately, while we are given things to go on, like scripture and the tradition of the church, none of us, are certain. For to claim certitude is to claim sovereignty, and to claim sovereignty is to claim that we are like God. Therefore, when it comes to deciding what is God's will concerning who is in and who is not, at least from my perspective, as I look at this story that moves further and further outside the boundaries of Judaism and Jerusalem to the women, to the Gentiles, to the unholy, to the lame, to the Ethiopian eunuch. The rings continue to grow and the circle widens. In my sense of this, if we're going to err, we need to err on the side of inclusion. The church will open its doors and widen the circle to include the lost, the least, the lame, the broken, regardless of race or gender or orientation or slave or female or male. Gamaliel was right. That's not to say that anything goes, certainly. But if it is of human origin, it will fail, for nothing can stop it. In the meantime, we take our stands. But as we do, let us not be too certain. Only time will tell. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.